Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. In the way that our schedule of readings we follow here, the lection, the Revised Common Lectionary, and the way that the lectionary parses out stories from the Old Testament during the summer, I sadly report to you that today is our first and only story of Elisha the prophet that we get to hear all summer. And it's really a shame. We're missing so many good stories about Elisha, this prophet whose name meant my God is salvation. There's some great stuff there in 2 Kings 5 through 10 that we miss. There's the story where Elisha and his friends are building a house by the river and the steel axe head flies off of the handle and lands in the water and it sinks to the bottom, but no problem because Elisha is kind of like a Jedi knight. He splits a stick in two, tosses it in the water, and the axe head made of steel rises to the surface. There's another story where Elisha commands all of the underground springs in the land to fill the creeks and channels with water even though it hadn't rained one drop. There's another story where Elisha causes a widow's oil supply to never run out. Another where he raises a child from the dead. There's another where he restores a pot of contaminated food that was making everybody sick. Or, and we'll file this one under the category weird stories of the Bible, there's the story of Elisha the prophet who meets a pack of teenage kids. Ha! It's the only youth group mentioned in the Bible. And the kids proceed to mock the prophet by calling him the bald one. They tell him to run away, baldy. And Elisha curses them, and the next thing you know, two mother bears rush out of the woods and maul all 42 of the kids. That's a youth ministry event gone poorly. There are some great and strange Elisha stories, but the lectionary leaves them to us to find on our own personal effort. For Sunday worship this summer, we get this one, the story of an army general from Israel's enemy, Aram, a guy named Naaman who has a terrible skin disease who is healed by Elisha, sort of. I mean, Elisha hardly appears in today's reading, but somehow, through Elisha's instructions, this general is cured of his skin disease. And if we're not careful, we might hear this story, and we might 
miss the point. If we're not careful, we might assume that this story is just another feel-good, quaint Bible story about somebody we don't really know and don't really care about getting healed. But I want to suggest to you today that this story is way bigger than merely just another healing story. I think that this story is actually a central and defining story. It is a story about a deep truth about God, and in it we uncover more about what it means to be a truly faithful people of God. The story begins in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have your pew Bibles, you might want to have them out so you can follow along. If not, that's fine. The story begins in 2 Kings chapter 5 in the left side of your Bible. Today's story begins in ancient Syria in a kingdom that was called Aram Damascus. The general of the Aramean army is a guy whose name is Naaman. The Hebrew scriptures describe him as an Ishgadol, okay? A great man, an exceptional man, and he's also an Ishgabor. That's how you say it, Ishgabor. He's a mighty warrior. Whatever else you need to know about Naaman, the text is clear. He did not rise to this rank by accident. He is an exceptional. He is a standout figure. He is a powerful military commander. But he has leprosy, which is another way of saying he had a very evident skin disease, something that had lesions and boils on it that would burst and then heal, resulting in massive amounts of scarring and discoloration. So here is this decorated warrior whose dress uniform had all the medals on it, cuts an imposing figure in his army regalia. He led the army that defeated Israel and killed their king, but his skin is disfigured and discolored and is breaking out in lesions and rashes. He's got to be tired of this condition. He may have had it for a while, it turns out, maybe even from his childhood. He'd surely consulted all the doctors and herbalists and priests to see if something could give him some relief. I mean, he is the head of the army, but no cure could be found. In verse 2 of today's reading, we learn that the Arameans had been conducting raids across the border with Israel, and in one of them, they had taken a young girl captive and turned her into a slave serving the general's wife. And this Israelite girl, maybe as old as Oliver or Calvin or Eli over there, this girl has been taken away from her family who perhaps were killed before her, watching on the chariot ride as her village burned. She's been taken into a foreign land and she's been made into a servant for the general's wife. But this girl, this enslaved child is going to bear witness to salvation. There is a prophet in Israel, she says, who can get Naaman well, she says to her mistress. She knows that wherever the prophet of God is, there is power. She knows that the God of Israel can heal and restore. We aren't told how she knows this or why she believes this, only that she does. And she thinks that Somehow, even Naaman, even the public face of the enemy, of, uh, of the army of her enemy, is a viable candidate for God's healing. 
Church, this young girl has absolutely every reason to stay silent, doesn't she? If any of us were her, I presume that it would, we would not likely contribute to the well-being of our captors. But here she is, bearing witness to the saving power of her God. The text doesn't say that the girl told Naaman, only that she told his wife. And the text doesn't say that Naaman's wife told Naaman, but we certainly can infer it because by verse 4, Naaman is in the throne room of the king begging his leave to go into their enemy's land and seek out an enemy prophet who might be able to cure him. And the king signs off, sends him with a letter addressed to the king of Israel explaining why the decorated general who killed his father in battle was now showing up to his palace with his whole chariot-laden horse-driven entourage. Naaman packs up a ludicrous amount of stuff to take with him. The text says in verse 5 that he took 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of garments, which, I mean, sounds like a lot, but it's Bible terms, and it's terms that we don't really use today. So if we were going to bring it up to date, we might say he brought $160,000 in silver, he brought $2 million worth of gold, and he brought enough outfits of exquisite hand-tailored garments to clothe an entire household. By packing up this much stuff, Naaman is saying there is not an upper limit to what he would pay to get rid of this disease. He's going to make this prophet rich if that's what it takes to cure him. So in verse 6, Naaman gets to the king's palace in Samaria, marches into the throne room, hands him the letter from the king of Aram. And the king of Aram thought that the prophet would be at the palace. Perhaps Naaman thought so too. Perhaps they thought that in Israel the prophet would be under the direct command of the king. And so the letter told the king to go ahead and heal Naaman. The letter literally reads, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of leprosy. The king reads the letter and throws up his hands and says, What's going on? I'm not God. I can't heal anybody. Wait a minute. He says, This is a trick. Aram's trying to start a war with us. Not once does the king think of Elisha the prophet, the prophet wearing the cloak of Elijah, nor does the king think that Naaman's request could be done. And the king is so worried and so anxious about this that in verse 7 it says he tore his clothes, one of those things that people did in the Bible when things got dire and they needed to ask for God's help. They tear their clothes, smear ashes on their faces and pray for deliverance. The king thinks that all is lost. Word gets to Elisha, the prophet who took over for Elijah, that the king had torn his clothes and was in a state of repentance and he was afraid for the future of his kingdom. And so Elisha sends the king a text message. Um, verse 8, why did you, uh, why'd you tear your clothes? Send Naaman to me. He'll see that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman arrives with all his pomp and with all his circumstance and with all his treasure, chariots and horses parading down and halting outside the prophet's house. But there is no greeting. The prophet and his household are not out waiting for him. There is no honor guard. The house is quiet and still. And then a messenger, a young boy, 
comes running up to the lead chariot which Naaman controlled. And the boy says to the general, verse 10, Thus says Elisha the prophet, Go down to the Jordan River and go under the water seven times. Then you will be well. End of message. Now Naaman had already given up a bit of his dignity by listening to his wife's servant. He'd sacrificed a bit more by crossing enemy lines to find a foreign prophet. But he is a four-star wartime general with a military career behind and before him. He is used to his enemies trembling in their boots and scraping their knee when he walks by. And so the fact that Elisha doesn't greet him personally but sends a young messenger is kind of the last straw. Verse 11, the text says, Naaman became angry and went away. What's going on? Naaman essentially shouts. He didn't know what to expect. He did not expect this. Naaman says, verse 11, look, I thought for sure when he heard it was me, he'd come out and he'd do his mystical prophet thing. You know, he'd, he'd stand there like this, and he'd, he'd pray there like this, and he'd wave his hand over me, and then the leprosy would be cured. Naaman wanted magic. He wanted some dramatic moment. He wanted a ritualized dance or a potion or some incantation. But more than that, Naaman wanted a simple, straightforward, client-vendor relationship with this prophet. He wanted to buy healing from the healer. He wasn't there to learn more about Israel's God. He wasn't there to listen to the prophet Elisha. He wasn't there because of faith. He was there to get something tangible, and he's willing to write a big check and stick it in the offering plate to get it. It's like he's saying, clearly, I've wasted my time coming. I expected signs and wonders, and instead I get a messenger delivering me a note to go to some dirty river and take a bath. He says in verse 12, with all of his nationalistic arrogance, plus, we've got better rivers in my country. If all I had to do was wash in a river, why did I waste my time and come all the way here to bathe in a second-rate stream of a third-class country? And he storms away, his pride flaring his servants go after him carefully, you know, as you might carefully go after an angry four-star general who controls your destiny and the destiny of your whole family. Sir, they say, if the prophet had ordered you to do something hard, you'd have done it. Why aren't you doing this easy thing? They're like, look, if he had said, go slay the great beast of the wilderness plains, you would have gone and done it. If they said, go and stand on your head at the shrine of the Lord, you would have done it. If they said, defeat the chief swordsmen of Israel in single combat, you would have done it immediately. So why aren't you just taking a bath? Well, we know how the story ends. Naaman listens to his servants. He does go down to the river. He does take that bath, plunging his head under seven times and his skin becomes brand new. He's healed. And Naaman returns and meets Elisha finally and says, now I know that there is no God in the world but the God in Israel. And Naaman, the four-star general of the enemy army, becomes a devoted follower and worshiper 
of the Lord God. And in the verses that follow our reading today, Naaman takes back with him two ox carts of dirt from Israel so that he can set up a little place of Israel in his backyard where he will now offer sacrifices to God. He even asks Elisha to forgive him ahead of time for all the times he's going to have to bow his head in prayer to the Syrian god Rimmon. Naaman came to Elisha, a client looking for a product. He left as a believer with a changed heart and mind. What are we going to do with this ancient story passed down from fireside to fireside as the people of God remembered their history? I mean, why did the historians choose to remember this story of a foreign general receiving the blessing of God's healing powers and becoming a convert? to Jewish monotheism. More to the point, what do we say to a room full of Christians gathered for worship, searching out a word from the Lord, a word of hope, a word of peace, a word of faith? Only this. With our God, there is hope. Even for the outsider even for the outcast, even for the spiritual foreigner, even for the ones who have been told all their lives that there's something wrong with you. With our God, there is hope. But also this, the only people in this story who get it right were the marginalized people, the slave girl, the messenger boy, and the servants of the general. The servant girl opened her mouth and pointed out the way to salvation, even to someone she may have despised, because with her God, she knew there was hope. The messenger boy revealed the key to healing, go wash in the river, because with his God, there was hope. And the general's servants urged the general to give this strange approach a chance, because maybe they thought, Maybe with Israel's God, there is hope. And there is. There is hope with our God. Like the captured slave girl and the prophet's messenger and the general's servants, we Christians bear witness to God's power to comfort and restore and heal. Even those outside Christian faith, knowing that an encounter with the God whom Jesus reveals brings about conversion and repentance and peace. We are called to bear witness. We are called to be like the servants in the text today who tell others about the God who heals and restores and rescues. We do this with our words. We do this with our gifts. We do this by our actions. We do this in our radical welcome and hospitality. The 70 disciples that Jesus commissioned in our gospel reading today are instructed to go and do just this. Go out, Jesus says. Be good guests and help the sick. And tell them by doing that that God's kingdom has come near. Whether people believe you or not, whether they welcome you or not, whether they care or not, whether they want you there or not, just be good ambassadors of the God who heals and who restores, and who rescues, and who reconciles, and who liberates. We are the servants and messengers of this story of Naaman. We aren't called to be the the healing prophet. We aren't called to be the mighty general. We aren't called to be the powerful king. 
We are called to be servants, messengers, announcers, those who relay a message of hope, not those who merely form lobbies to sway votes and install judges. We are those, when we meet outsiders to Christian faith, even those who are hostile to it, even those who seem accursed by God, we are those who bear witness to the love of God in Christ for all God's children, giving a welcome to all who desire it so that in the water of the word and the sacraments, in the stream of Christian worship, here in the river of confession and thanksgiving, people might be plunged under and emerge with newfound faith and hope. Naaman didn't convert before he entered the waters. He didn't confess his sins and accept Jesus before his head plunged under the water. His skin wasn't cleansed because he was such a good Christian. Naaman was healed because God loved him and because God made him and because God was acting through him even though he didn't know it at the time. Naaman was healed because our God is merciful and gracious and loving. And because of that, Naaman was changed. His vision of the world was radically expanded. It was dramatically enhanced. He knew now that with Israel's God, there was hope and power. Because sometimes, church, that's just how it goes. Sometimes the sign precedes faith. Sometimes being offered the gifts of God when we don't deserve them, is what inaugurates and catalyzes faith in our lives. That's what sacraments are. They're visible signs of an invisible grace. They're like little radios that take the invisible radio waves of God's mercy and grace and translate them into things we can see and smell and touch and taste. And here today, as we go out to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that just as Naaman entered the waters and emerged filled with faith, so too we may emerge with faith in our hands when we but received bread and a cup. Here we're reminded that God's love for us preceded all of our best intentions. We're told again that God's love was put into action before we knew anything of it. We're told that in Jesus Christ there is hope for all God's children. There is hope for those on the outside. There is hope for those who feel abandoned and isolated. There is hope for those who are facing death alone and frightened. There is hope and we are the ones who bear witness to it. At the table, we learn we are the ones whom Jesus is sending out into our world to tell of God's grace and love. So let us make ready to come to the feast today, ready to be nourished in our faith so that we might serve the Lord this week. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen.